0: Amen. The title of the message today is the defilement of Dinah. Hard topic to talk about. But it's in the book of books, right? Everything in the book of books is worthy of our speech. We're worthy of our teaching. Has lessons for us. And in this dealing with Dinah being violated by Shechem, We notice firstly in your bulletin outline that she, she was an innocent victim. Chapter 33 verse 18 tells us that Jacob and his family arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. So the word Shechem is used here in a dual capacity. It talks about the city that has that name and it talks about the guy after whom the city was named, Shechem himself, son of Hamor. But you see, he's arrived safely here, and it's God keeping his promise to uh, Jacob. Chapter 31, verse 3. Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. I will be with you. The qualifier, he arrived safely, chapter 33, verse 18, is not accidental. Accidental. It indicates that travel in this day among the Semitic tribes was sometimes very dangerous. In fact, before Jacob ever left the environs of Palestine, he took a vow to God at Bethel where he had the dream of the staircase, you remember. And here's what it says. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I am taking, And will give me food to eat and clothes to wear. So that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. Which is what the word Bethel means. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth or a tithe. Genesis 28 verse 20 and following. Now Jacob has been gone for 20 plus years, yet here he is again, back in Canaan, where his journey began. He is safe, he is sound, despite the many trials that he has had to endure with the treachery of his father-in-law, Laban, and the long-time threats of his estranged brother, Esau, but all that is behind him now. There's peace, there's tranquility. He's safe. And sensing that safety, he purchased a plot of land from the sons of Hamor, upon which he did two things. Chapter 33, verse 19, he pitched his tent there and built an altar there to worship God, verse 20. And he called the altar El Elohei Israel. Mighty is the God of Israel. He's feeling secure. He's feeling that God has protected him and kept him and watched over him on his journey and took him out to the far country, Padamaran, Moran, to his mother's brother's place. But he's brought him back, too. He's brought him back to Canaan. The campsite and the worship site indicate that in Jacob's mind, he planned to stay there a while. I think he's sick of traveling. He is weary of relocating his vast herds of livestock. It'll be so good just to stop and to rest a while. He will have time to think. He will have time to contemplate God and his goodness. He will have time to worship unencumbered by the trials of life. Or will he? Or will he? No sooner has Jacob settled into Canaan than Dinah, his daughter, on an innocent trip to town to visit with the women folk, chapter 34, verse 1, was accosted by Shechem, son of Hemor, the ruler who violated her. The Hebrew word is forced himself on her against her wishes. Because of the feminist movement's influence on society, our society, Rape has been identified as a crime of passion. No, they say. It is a crime of anger. It's a crime of rage. It's a crime of hatred. And specifically a crime of power. Because men are stronger than women. But observe in our text, verse 3. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the girl. He spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, get me this girl as my wife. Now without denying that Shechem manhandled Dinah against her wishes, it's clear from the inspired text that he loved Dinah and he wanted to marry her. He certainly went about it in a sinful way and his conduct is repulsive, it's indefensible. But it does demonstrate that some rape is fueled by passion, not anger, not rage, not hatred. I just remind you, brethren, that we are to get our definitions of things in life from the scripture, from what God says about things, not what the world says, and not in the world's definitions. So, number two. Shechem made a proposal to Jacob and to Dinah's brothers. Jacob waited till his sons came in from the fields after disclosing what had happened. In the interim, Hamor, Shechem's father, tried to arrange the marriage for Dinah. Look at verse 8. My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Again, this, this is uh, love speaking, this is passion speaking. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. Acquire property in it. I'm reading this and I'm thinking this is a generous dowry. But there's more. Look at verse 11. Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers... Let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you, get this, whatever you ask. And that's not enough. He goes on. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask. I read this and I say, oh my, this guy has it bad. He is so fallen for Dinah That he is telling Jacob and her brothers, here is a blank check. You just write in the price and I'm ready to mortgage the farm. I'll pay whatever you want. This was a tremendous good faith proposal. Which Jacob and his sons were never likely to see again. For one thing, not many men would have the resources that Shechem had at his disposal, and for another, how many fathers like Amor, would be ready to marry into another clan and offer their daughters in marriage to facilitate an alliance? From our vantage point, it looks like a win-win situation for both families. Shechem gets to marry the love of his life. Hamer gets a daughter-in-law his son adores. Jacob secures a home for his maiden daughter. And the brothers get to name their price for the dowry. We say, sign me up. Oh, but not so fast. My grandma would say, there's a fly in the ointment. Hasn't Hamer and his son Shechem forgotten The travesty done to Dinah. Maybe so, but Dinah's brothers have not forgotten. Their feelings on the matter are stated in verse 7. As soon as they were apprised of what had happened, they were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. These brothers were not just uncaring lugs who wanted to crack a few heads together. No, they grieved for Dinah. They entered into her emotional pain and disgrace. And secondly, they were furious. The Hebrew word here is enflamed or enraged. is speaking of the fire of anger that their sister would be so ill-treated by the Hivite clan. Is this the way you treat guests in your country? Is there no moral decency presiding among you Hivites? Or are you just slaves to passionate lusts? I would say it this way these brothers are hopping mad. And even a magnanimous dowry was not going to buy their approval of the marriage and placate the wickedness done to Dinah. And so that brings us to what they did in number point three, the deceitful, deceitful rather response of Jacob's brothers. Look at verse 14. Because their sister Dinah, her, by the way, her name means judgment. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. Okay, what was the deceit? Verse 15. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you became, become like us by circumcising all your males. Circumcision, as you know, was the covenant sign given to Abraham and his descendants to mark them out and separate them from the world as the people of God. Other nations did not practice circumcision. So the brothers made this appeal in the form of an ultimatum. Look at verse 17. If you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll just take our sister and we'll go. What are they saying? They're saying, we don't want your livestock. They're saying, we don't want your money. What we want is for you Hivites to so identify with us as people that we can consider you brothers. Then, but only then, verse 16, we will give you our daughters, oh yes, and take your daughters for ourselves, we'll settle among you, we'll become one people with you. What is that? That's the same terms that Hamor and Shechem themselves had proposed, verse 9 and following. The deceit in all this is, is what I will call a hidden agenda. The context shows that Jacob's sons had absolutely no intention of making a marriage alliance, or any other kind of alliance for that matter, with Shechem and the other Hivites. What they were planning was total annihilation, For all the Hivites of that city, when the males were in severe pain from having been circumcised, verse 25 and following, they intended vengeance, not restitution, murder, not marriage. And verse 18 and following indicates that Shechem and his father Hamor fell for the ruse. Hook, line, and sinker, as we say. Together they went to the elders of the city, that's the city gate, And there they made this pitch, verse 21. These men, they're referring to the Israelites, these men are friendly toward us. They said, let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters. They can marry ours. Wow, wow. This sounds like a mutual admiration society, full of pluses with no downside. All they want from us is to be circumcised as they themselves are. Verse 22. Boy, we listen to this and we think, this really is a a wonderful agreement. It has Donald Trump mega deal written all over it. Both parties get what they want. There seems to be mutual respect for all the players The wishes of all are taken into consideration. No one is disenfranchised. Everyone receives exactly what they had hoped for in the pact. What could possibly be wrong? Well, one thing wrong is that the Hivites have a secret agenda too. And it's full of larceny. Definition of larceny is this. Read it from the dictionary the wrongful taking and carrying away of the personal goods of another from his or her possession with the intent to convert them to the taker's own use. Now look at verse 23. Shechem and Hamar say, with regard to Jacob and his sons, won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become Ours. Ah, Ours. So let us give our consent to them, and they will settle among us. There's another secret agenda. This is like a rattler and a cobra vying for position to see which one of them will strike first. Neither Jacob's sons nor the Hivites proved to be honorable men. They are all snakes working on their own venomous strategy. So that brings us to number four. Jacob's two sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's blood brothers, by the way, by Leah, cross-reference, look at 3525, they go and they annihilate the Hivite males. They waited until the entire male population of the city was in pain due to circumcision. And then, verse 25, they took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. The victims, of course, included Hamar and Shechem. At this juncture, it appears that the remaining sons of Jacob joined in spoiling the Hivites, verse 27. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and they looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They snatched up, verse 28, flocks, herds, dockies, everything else of, their, of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and their women and their children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. This raid on the city was so devastating that Jacob confronted Simeon and Levi, accusing them, you have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Perizzites would be the uh, rural dwellers around the city. The people living in this land, we are few in number, and if they join forces against us and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Now Jacob is, he is correct to be distraught. Obviously he had been excluded from the nefarious plot of his sons. But he and the household were liable to face the consequences nonetheless. Who are the uh, Hivites going to hold responsible? It's going to be Jacob and the household. Well to that Levi and Simeon remained defiant to the very end. look at verse 31. Should he, Shechem, have treated our sister like a prostitute? They are saying, Father, we regret nothing. Shechem got what he deserved. And if we had to do it all over again, we would do it all over again. So they are not repentant at all. They are defiant. And that's the way the account ends. Lots of bad taste in the Canaanite mouth. Because of these two brothers. Now what can we say about the lessons that Simeon and Levi teach us? And Jacob for that matter as well. Number one. What we consider to be the perfect homestead to live in. And particularly to live out our days. May end up a nightmare when faith caves in to self-will. Admittedly, Jacob and his family had gone through some very difficult times in Padam Aram. True, Isaac and Rebekah both urged Jacob to flee from Palestine and to go to Rebekah's brother, Laban, in Padam Aram, to escape the murderous plot of Esau. But Laban was no saint He tricked Jacob by marrying Leah to him when he had worked for Rachel. So then Jacob had to work another seven years for Rachel, a total of uh, 14 years when it was only supposed to be seven years. And then these two sisters became rivals for Jacob's affection. And when they could no longer have children, they married off their maidservants to Jacob in a continual effort to produce heirs. The tension mounted when Laban changed Jacob's wages ten times in an attempt to profit from Jacob's herdsman skills. And finally, Jacob had had enough. And so, under God's direction, he fled from Laban, and as noted today, chapter 33, verse 18, arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. There Jacob purchased a plot of land, on which he pitched his tent and built an altar for worship, obviously believing that this town among the Hivites would become a suitable home for his family. But you know, we have no word from God indicating that the town of Shechem was where God wanted Jacob to be. He just just, just chose that on his own after parting from Esau. Fortunately, we do know where God wanted Jacob to end up. It's in the next chapter, verse 1, chapter 35. After the fiasco at Shechem, God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. See, Bethel, that's, that's where you should be. Those were, That was the place of good times and godly times and blessed times. They were all experienced there at Bethel. But the town of Shechem held no such history for Jacob. And guess what? The Hivites were descendants of the Canaanites. They were wicked idolaters. You know, it's almost like Lot moving near Sodom all over again. Shechem was obviously a wealthy town. Hamer's son, Shechem, didn't even sneeze at the notion of an opulent dowry. For Dinah, he was willing to pay any amount. Perhaps this affluence is what drew Jacob and his sons to settle there. But whatever the reason, wealth or trade routes or abundant grazing uh, land and water, friendly people, none of these things would have been and should have been the deciding factor in Jacob's decision to locate there. He was lulled by his logic. And not his faith. He took his altar with him as though God could be earnestly worshipped at Chechem as well as in Bethel. But it was not so. You know, sometimes we do the same self-willed thing. We plan our future on logic. We discard the faith in God that has sustained us for all our years. Maybe we, like Jacob, are weary of the struggle or weary of the fight to remain faithful to God's placement. We want a little R&R, especially in our senior years. We want a place that's part of the American pie. But God wants us in Bethel, not Shechem. We should keep that in mind. I have had people in my ministry, families now I'm thinking of, And I'm not thinking just here of in Michigan, but elsewhere where I pastored, I have had people leave the church for no biblical reason whatsoever and go to a different neighborhood because it was a nicer neighborhood. It's gonna be farther. Are you gonna be able to come to church? No, no, Pastor, it's gonna be too far for us to drive. Do you have to move? Well, we wanna move. There's a nice it's a nice community and it's it's got good schools for our kids, and on and on it goes. And they move away without even investigating whether their soul is going to be nourished by God's word in a gospel-preaching church. They just make the decision based on logic, not on our faith. It's a tremendous thing to learn of what is important. God can bring you terrible times with our personal choices. Number two, we should learn that there are some things so wicked that no amount of money can rectify them. Though Shechem was willing to pay a huge dowry to marry Dinah, maybe indicating in that some remorse, some restitution for how he had treated her, Jacob's brothers were not appeased. To them, the disgrace of defilement for Dinah could not be atoned for by silver or gold. There was a more basic principle involved, as stated in verse 7. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. There's another guy in scripture, and a very similar thing. Absalom had a sister, Absalom, one of the sons of David. Her her name was Tamar. And she had an admirer in Amnon, half-brother. To Absalom. While Amnon feigned sickness, he feigned love for Tamar. And when David sent her unwillingly to nurse Amnon back to health, he wasn't really sick, but it was a ruse, Amnon assaulted her against her protests. Here she says, Don't, my brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you but he refused to listen to her and since he was the stronger of the two she since he was the stronger of the two he raped her 2nd Samuel 13 verse 12 and following not only so but when Amnon had finished violating Tamar the bible says then Amnon hated her with intense hatred in fact he hated her more than he had loved her well that tells you a lot right there Amnon said to her get up get out No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And she put her hand on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. 2 Samuel 13, verse 15 and following. Here is a rape that is forced by strength, fueled by hatred. Well, Absalom surmised what had happened almost instantly. And he comforted Tamar and took her into his household, where she lived the rest of her life, the scripture says, as a desolate woman. Though Absalom never confronted Amnon about this, he bided his time. And two years later, after the incident, Absalom had Amnon assassinated and then fled the country. Solomon wrote, and we read it this morning, Proverbs 6, that when a woman has been violated by an adulterer, jealousy arouse a husband's fury and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great It is. Well, verse 34 and following, the same seems to have applied with Jacob's sons who refused the generous dowry for Dinah as they wreaked havoc on Shechem for his assault on their sister. Now keep in mind, these were the days before the giving of the law, before monarchical rule, before policemen, before prisons, each patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, now Jacob, each patriarch was responsible for the safety and protection of their own clan. Jacob took a more diplomatic posture towards the incident with Dinah, but the brothers acted in fury on principle, on principle. They were sinfully wrong in wiping out the entire male population of the town for the sins of one man. But right or wrong, their fury was driven by their grief for Dinah's humiliation. Solomon warns men do not despise a thief. If he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold. Though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But, but a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does, a, does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot. And his shame will never be wiped away. Proverbs 6, verse 30 through thirty-three. There's a difference between stealing a loaf of bread... And stealing the virginity or the reputation of a woman through force. So they operated on principle. Number thirdly, we need to beware of proposals made by the world which appear to be too good to be true, because they usually are too good to be true, they're flawed. Jacob, being the wheeler-dealer in his own business transaction, seems to have bought into Shechem and Hamer's proposed dowry payment for Dinah. I mean, Shechem had money to burn, as we say. And so he offered a blank check to Jacob as a dowry for Dinah. Verse 11. Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever, and I will give you whatever you ask. Oh, and just in case... Jacob has missed the import of that offer. Shechem went on to say, verse 12, Make the price for the bride and the gift I'm to bring of great value as you like. And I'll pay whatever you ask. He is what we would call filthy rich. (laughs) Money is no obstacle. Just give me the girl, he said. This is a man who is so well off financially that price is no object to him. Certainly it is no obstacle to closing the deal. But there was also a hidden agenda here. Shechem and his father Hamor went to the city fathers to make a pitch for all of the men of their community to be circumcised as demanded by Jacob's sons. And their pitch included the agreed-upon terms, free trade, an exchange of daughters in marriage, the ability to buy and sell land for housing and farming, all of this known to Jacob's sons in the previous conversation. But something new was added. Something kept secret from Dinah's brothers, but now stated to the city fathers. Verse 23. Won't their livestock and their property and all their other animals become ours. So let us give our consent to them, and they will settle among us. In other words, what Shechem plans to give Jacob and his sons in one hand, he intends to confiscate with the other. The good deal is the bad deal. The obvious transparency of the Hivites had treachery in the details. We ask well now how could Jacob and his sons know that? I mean this this is said to the city fathers. Well the answer is except by divine intervention they would have no way of knowing this. This is like closed door communication kind of thing. But obedience get this now obedience would have done for them what insight did not? Paul writes this way. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Think about that. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial's is the name for Satan. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will live with them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. 2 Corinthians six, fourteen through 17. Oh, and by the way, listen to the Mosaic law. And when the Lord your God has delivered them, the Canaanites... Over to you and you have defeated them. Then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons. Do not take their daughters to your sons. Deuteronomy 7 verse 2 and 3. Pretty clear. We often think that we are too strong in our faith to be schnookered. Into spiritual infidelity. We think, yeah, you know, I can associate with the world. I can befriend unbelievers. I can join in their enterprises. It won't affect me. We may even think that our Christian testimony will win the skeptics and the wicked to our position. But of Solomon, whose wisdom makes you and me midgets by comparison, Mighty Solomon, wise Solomon, all-knowing Solomon. What do we read of him? His wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. 1 Kings 11, verse 4. The same would apply to some of the business Practices of the world where deception and greed and backdoor deals and spending what you don't have with the goal of hitting the jackpot by any and all means are everyday occurrences on Wall Street, but they have no place among God's people who are honor-bound by faith in God to work with honest scales, the scripture says, fulfilled contracts, kept vows, and so on. Even if it means we may suffer loss. So we need to beware. Jacob and his sons never investigated the possibility that the Hivites might trick them or say one thing while doing another. They were gullible, if not guilty, of greed. And because they operated on principle, not price, God protected them, but Sometimes, you know, God may simply allow you to reap what you've sown because reasonableness is not part of your makeup. You need to learn through loss, and God will allow that sometimes. These are tremendous lessons to learn from this text. And then last night when I was sleeping, I thought of another lesson, so it's not in the bullet. Here it is. Jacob's sons used an ordinance, in this case circumcision, to promote oneness as a child of God with those who were not brothers in the faith but were told that they could become brothers if they'd just be circumcised. There are churches in our day that teach and use the doctrine of baptism as a means of salvation. And they say something like this. If You need to, you need to become a child of God. You need to become one with us. Okay, how do, I, how do I do that? You need to be baptized. And these churches teach that salvation begins with the right a baptism. It's faulty logic. And it's a deadly theology. Baptism saves no one. And I find it interesting that we who are Baptists don't place that kind of weight on the right of Baptism. We never teach that people are saved because of water Baptism. We never invite people to the waters of baptism to get saved, as does Roman Catholicism in the Church of Christ. So here are our brothers of Israel, and they're using circumcision to the Hivites and saying, you know, you can become brothers with us if you'll just follow this ordinance of circumcision. And when you are circumcised, You'll become part of the covenant community. You will become part of the saved community. It was not then. It was not then, and it is not now, that following any rite of ordinance, and today we're going to go to our communion service in about 10 minutes or so, no ordinance, no obedience to any ordinance has any saving effect. These are signs of God's people already It's not a means to become one of God's people. So, what a terrible experience for Dinah and the family, and even for uh, the brothers who I think lost it. (laughs) They lost it on this occasion. They were right to be angry, fury, it says. They were right to be grieved. But if anything, they should have taken their uh, anger and their grief against Shechem himself and not the whole town. They went overboard in their anger, and, and yet God spared them. The Perizzites did not unite with the Hivites and destroy the family. God allowed them to move on to Bethel, as we'll see next week. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and it's a hard word sometimes when we think about these wicked things that happen to God's people at times. Think of Dinah, we think of Tamar, another woman. Think of after World War II, the statistics are that over two million... German women were raped by the invading Russian army, two million. Men are wicked. They take their vengeance in ways that are cruel and just as wicked as the enemy has been. Lord, we're God's people and we pray that you will help us to see reasonableness if we're going to be righteously angered, make, make it in our hearts that it really is righteous and not just uh, self-indulgence, not just venting our own spleen. But Lord, give us sobriety. And what is more, we are told that vengeance belongs to the Lord and that he's the one that's going to repay. It's not our job to repay. We're to leave room for the wrath of God, Paul teaches us. So I pray that you will help us to see that. Now bless us in the hour to come as we gather around your table and as we begin to think of what we might share concerning your grace and goodness. You are gracious. You are good to your people. I pray that you'll help us to see that and rejoice in it. In Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. Number 338 in the red hymnal. Want to come on? Lead us here.